Welcome to the podcast that shares the views of high-level leaders in the European and global financial services industry. Welcome to Shaping Finance, a podcast which offers a platform to high-level decision makers and shapers in international finance. My name is Nicolas Maquel. I'm the CEO of Luxembourg for Finance and the host of this podcast. I am joined today by Cynthia Tobiano, the deputy CEO of the Edmond de Rothschild Group, and she's also the CFO and a member of the Group Executive Committee since April 2019. Cynthia began her career in investment banking at Goldman Sachs, first as an M&A analyst in London and then as a partner in Paris before being named Vice Chair of the Paris-London Mergers and Acquisitions team. She joined Edmond Rothschild in 2011 as Head of Finance and Development and a member of the Management Committee and the Executive Committee of Edmond Rothschild France. Cynthia holds an MBA from ESSEC Paris, one of France's finest business schools. Thank you very much, Cynthia, for taking the time to share your views with our audience. Thank you. The Rothschild family has a long history and has played a particularly prominent role in shaping finance across Europe since the 18th century. The group follows a number of particular business lines, but is perhaps most well known for private banking. Can you give a brief explainer to our listeners regarding the various business lines in which your group is active? which types of clients you serve and what geographic markets you are active in. So our group has, I would say, kind of a, a unique place in the financial landscape for various reasons. One, um, we have this mix of 250 euro of history, a mythical name and a strong name where we are uh, fully family owned and we are therefore totally independent group. We have, roughly speaking, 170 billion under uh, management in terms of uh, assets under management in two very complementary businesses, which are private banking for around 75 billion and asset management for the remaining. We really position ourselves as a conviction-driven investment house, which we believe is an echo to our shareholder family history and the tradition of investment, uh, long-term investment. We have effectively three major hubs, which are France, Switzerland, and Luxembourg, uh, based on which we offer a broad range of coverage and abilities. The Going back to our strategy and the conviction in how we do the investment, we um, favor strategies that are rooted in the real economy and that really combine the, on one hand, the financial long-term performance and on the other hand, the impact on the quote-unquote real um, economy. We do that through active management uh, via concentrated portfolio or thematic investments. And we aim to present and to offer to our client, I would say, a broad range of solutions from liquid to illiquid assets, whether it be private equity, real estate, or infrastructures. And we are therefore able to respond, I would say, in a agile way to our client needs. 
the market we are, I would say, core, we are a European player, wealth manager. Having said that, obviously, we have that anchor has the weight of our business. Obviously, we also, from that base, we address Middle East and Africa. And we have developed a very targeted approach in Asia because we are, you know, small enough to be agile, but not, but small also means that you can't be, you need to be focused. And so we've targeted our approach in Asia through strong partnerships, notably in asset management, specifically in Japan and uh, Korea. We are, as I said before, one of uh, our three hubs and three core market is Luxembourg. We celebrated last year our 50 years presence in uh, in Luxembourg. Uh, Luxembourg is also the uh, registration platform for most of our UCITS funds and uh, our private equity funds. And we are very excited because we are just uh, moving all our employees in Luxembourg in into one new bright new premises in the in La Cloche d'Or. So we're happy about that that. Um, uh, putting people all together in the same location in Luxembourg. Well, thank you very much for that trust in uh, Luxembourg. Um, coming back to the real economy, the last couple of years were marked by ultra-low interest rates. And this has certainly posed a challenge to the wealth management and investment industry. How did your bank adapt to this environment and where did you look for yield? How will the current crisis impact your strategy? I would say three things. Maybe first of all, I think our conviction is that the interest rates are lower for the long run. And it's one of the main challenges facing the financial industry for certain. What is clearly striking is that effectively what we are saying today is that time has no value anymore, which is in itself a, a concept the state bonds should not be any longer considered as a safe haven. And in a way, the COVID crisis has not created this strength. It has more, I would say, strengthened this trend. And so therefore, this is the first point, just to put our conviction in the context and how do we address this. In this context, I think what is particularly striking and where we feel confident is the fact that, as I said before, we position ourselves and what we've been developing is long-term solution for investment for our clients and bridging with a conviction that you can bring long-term value and real economy impact, meaning that we have developed over the last, I would say, decade, three key expertise, private equity, primary private equity, real estate and infrastructure debt. Now, those three expertise, they support entrepreneurs. Um, we do them with a very strong focus on ESG and an impact on the real economy. And in a way, it is one of, we've, and we've seen client appetite for those kind of solutions, given the environment of interest, of the low interest rate, but the yield is clearly more attractive than what they could be found as alternatives on the markets. At the same time, it is something that we can, we are profoundly um, uh, convinced that this is a long-term solution uh, that can bring a lot of value both to our clients and to the companies and the project we can invest in. We also believe that the polarization between active and passive managers is a emerging trend in the industry. 
There is space alongside with a large passive and mainstream management for conviction-driven with long-term investment and concentrated portfolio. Um, we keep developing those solutions. If you take that on board, going maybe to the last point of your question, the post-COVID convictions along the same lines, the new normal would be one, China watered the crisis better than, than the other economies. And uh, one of our pillar investment conviction today is the importance to have an exposure to that region and a country in a diversified portfolio. Two, the Western government bond will remain low to service the additional debt from stimulus measures. Uh, so there, need, there is need to find new sources of yields in the corporate credit and emerging debt. Three, obviously, and uh, you, you mentioned it earlier, the lockdown and everything that we've experienced in 2020 highlighted the use, the need for, at the end of the day, all industries to digitalize, one, and two, the use of technology in general. So we see and we are convinced that technology and digitalization are key factors to be reckoned with and are obviously sectors that we are particularly attracted to. Um, and that would typically include smart healthcare, um, everything related to digital consumption. Obviously, all that linked to, as a consequence, cybersecurity has, has surged. And that, again, conviction that this is not conjunctural, it's a structural move. And so there's structural demand for that. The development, obviously, of logistic centers. We've you know, radically seen the booming of the new revolution of the, of the e-commerce. And I would say, finally, the ASG theme. Or again, given what I said before, this is not something that we, we as Edmond Rothschild see as something new, because this is, you know, one of the fundamental pillars on how we construct our um, solution to our clients, but it's clearly a key themes for 2021 and beyond. And especially as you see that most stimulus programs have in common green tech and sustainability. If another point on that is when you look at the recent election, John Kerry, uh, who uh, um, the uh, after five, four or five years of skepticism on the from the from the Trump administration on the on the Paris Agreement, what we expect is to have a big move forward from the U.S. in these fields, going back to infrastructure and sustainability and green project outlook. Good. Thank you very much for this very in-depth explanation of your activities and how they're impacted by the current crisis. Before we get to dig a little bit deeper on ESG and on uh, digitalization of the industry, let me ask one more question on the impact of the current COVID crisis. It has prompted a collapse of economic growth overall. However, World equity markets are up year to date. And for instance, the technology heavy Nasdaq has surged more than 40% in 2020. How are investors reconciling this year's terrible economic data with the market's exuberance? I would say, you know, obviously it's shocking when you put those two references together. I think there are effectively two things. One, You've never seen before, even in 2008, so much injection of liquidity from the central banks 
in the system. And so the market, the market takes also that into account. To give you an example, the amount that was injected and redeployed in the market in the last six months is more than what was done in six years after 2008, just to give you an order of magnitude of liquidity injected in the system. So at some point in time, that, you know, caution support the valuation level and explain part of it. And obviously, the second reason on the technology, etc., the 2020 year has really clicked a new step in terms of the usage of technology, what it was possible. Think about, think about home office. Um, home office doing um, the level, and again, maybe we're, we're in the middle of it, so it's very difficult to take what is going to be structural, what is probably an emotional uh, discussion that we're all having, but imagining that people could be four days a week on home office has huge implication for technology and cybersecurity, et cetera, um, impact. And therefore, the outlook, the future outlook for those kind of uh, technology-driven companies is clearly different from a food and beverage, I would say classical retail retail chain, just to uh, give two, I would say, uh, two end of the spectrum. And then let's get to sustainable finance, which has certainly been one of the uh, phenomena that pre-existed the crisis. And you mentioned that before, but it has been accelerated by this crisis. Is the belief in the need to build back better, to use that slogan, already felt in the demand of your clients? And what is needed in order to boost sustainable finance products? So I would say, obviously, as I said before, we've been involved in sustainable finance for the last 15 years, just given that our DNA and the conviction of our shareholders and responsible investment criteria are becoming as natural as financial analysis in our investment decision. They go hand in hand without one opposing the other using our proprietary models. What we have seen is, I would say, on the institutional side of our platform, the interest request and necessity to have at that kind of sustainable approach, I would say is not 2020 related. It started few, I would say, you know, 24, 26 months ago. On the private banking side, it is more recent and we see more and more our client with the willingness to give back to the society a part of their wealth and are much more sensitive to the environmental um, impacts of the company they invest in. And we see large players entering the market. Private banking is very much seen as a business built on trust and personal relations between clients and their advisors. How is the role of private banks shifting given new technologies and the digitalization of financial services? Do you see younger clients, newer generations changing this inherent aspect of private banking? I would say we see, I would say more we see at this moment because of the, you know, just the life cycle of our client. We see more, I would say, the um, uh, less younger uh, generation uh, using more naturally the mobile apps and the internet and the different digital tools than a younger population. But I would say the 
personal, obviously we believe, one, the personal relationship between the client and our relationship managers is key. And our conviction is that you don't substitute technology to the human touch. At the same time, you need to have all the digital tools possible to facilitate the client life, the client experience, the smoothness of the onboarding and of the ongoing administrative process, because it's, you know, you know how cumbersome it can be to open an account and, and the number of statements, etc. And so you need to have those tools and you need to have those tools state of the art. They are not at all for us a replacement of the human touch, of the human analysis of the for the to deliver the best quality investment advice that we do, but they are really a complement to our offer. And I would say what has changed in COVID during the 2020 year effectively is what was and we see it in our French business where we we're really at the at the hedge of the digitalization in, in, in there, what was a nice to have, you know, not long ago, huh, 2019, is today a um, much more of a prerequisite. And that's why we are, you know, we've reallocated, and I think like a lot of other Western wealth management players, reallocate a lot of our investment towards a uh, group-wide objective of putting as much as digital tools as possible in all our businesses, whether it be corporate finance, private banking, or asset management, because this is something that, at the end of the day, improve the client experience, facilitate the life of the client, but also of our employees. Looking into the future, where does an institution such as yours look for growth. Are you exploring new geographies? You mentioned China before or the Middle East. Um, does growth lie in new service lines or serving new clients? We often hear about the need to grow through consolidation and we've seen some large deals made in recent years. You as an M&A experts, do M&A deals form part of Edmond de Rothschild's thinking for long-term growth? Now, absolutely. I would say there are three pillars in how we look at it. One is to recognize that we are small. We are a mid-sized player and therefore you cannot compete on all the fronts and you, you need at all times to remain focused. It is extremely difficult for us, for example, although very appealing to buy something, for example, in the U.S., but you need to have the global reach and the scale sufficient to be able to properly manage such, if it was the case, such an acquisition. So that's one. Stay focused and acquisitions need to be complementary to what we are doing. And uh, we should be able to have the bandwidth sufficient to really absorb it. Two, I think we are very strong. Our typicity is, is relatively strong. As we say internally, we've developed this English word, which is not uh, typicity, on the real asset front. And we've built over the last, I would say, five years, what is close to 20 billion of assets under management in the real assets. And that is something where I believe opportunities to consolidate that space further it will be presented if only because of the generational change that will happen in this space. Obviously, the SRR and impact angle is for us very important and the entrepreneurial spirit. So we have, we have I would say, a relatively narrow 
and well-defined ob set of objectives when we look at uh, acquisition. And obviously, on the private banking side, that would be my third pillar, the private banking side is scalable, and it's more and more a game of scale uh, in the private banking business. And to do that, again, um, this has to be something that is close to our roots, our culture, and our platform. So we are, and we have the capabilities, we have about a billion and a half for acquisition. So we are looking at all opportunities and we are effectively very stringent in um, applying those three pillars. As we come to the end of the podcast, uh, I would like to ask you a question that has become a bit of a tradition to end on. And that is, if there has been a book that you have read recently and that you would like to recommend to our listeners. So I've already offered one book, which I read. Actually, I'm cheating a little bit because it's probably the third time that I read it. But I thought that instantly of it. It's the Lettre Béninoise from Nicolas Baverez. It's a fascinating book, especially, uh, I think it was written, you know, I want to say five years, but I might be wrong ago. Um, it's a um, 2040. Uh, the head of the FME is at that time in the fiction, huh? someone from uh, Benin, so they are fr from Africa, mm -hmm. and is on the last mission of the FME to save the French economy with a, um, a subsidy, I would I guess would say, from the FME. It really is a description of the country that is very hard to read because it's very it's very hard. It's it's torn. It's more it's you know the concept of nation of country has disappeared to the benefit quote unquote of more isolated regions of wealth surrounded by regions of uh, of obviously all the cha the usual challenges and employment poverty and violence and i think that it's very tough reading because it's it you know gives you a, a picture of an european country um that at the same time is you know you as a european you feel uneased by reading this and at the same time can become so real when you think about what the economy and the prospects could look like in you know by 2014 our continent it certainly is true that our economies are fragile goods and we need to nurture them and make sure that they will be able to continue in a sustainable way because that is what keeps people employed Thank you very much, Cynthia Tobiano, for sharing your insights with our audience. Thanks also to our listeners who have tuned in again to our podcast. In our next episode, I will be speaking to Julie Becker, the founder of the Luxembourg Green Exchange and designated CEO of the Luxembourg Stock Exchange. And to stay up to date with our podcast, Please feel free to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or Google. You can also find more information on our website luxembourgforfinance.com.